Several are visiting here this morning. We're very glad that you are here, and we want you to uh, feel welcome. And uh, our purpose is simply to seek to follow the Lord in His will. That's the most important thing we can do, is try to find out what God wants and try to honor Him in the ways that He teaches. Would you open your Bible with me to Judges chapter 7? Judges chapter 7, we're going to look this morning at Gideon again. We looked at him a few weeks ago and we talked about some of what we see in Gideon that Gideon was called by God at a very critical time. The Midianites were very severely oppressing Israel. They were coming in and raiding at harvest time and taking all their crops and God raised up a man who didn't think he was qualified And a man who needed considerable reassurance, but finally he convinced Gideon to go and to deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. And in Judges chapter 7 and verse 1, Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, lest Israel become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now, the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped, and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all of the other people go, each man to his own home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Gideon raises his army. He's got 32,000 men. We know from chapter 8 that the Midianites had 135,000 men. So Israel's army is outnumbered by more than 4 to 1. The Lord raises a problem with the size of the army, but it's the opposite problem we would have seen. The Lord says you've got too many soldiers. Outnumbered four to one, but he says there's too many of them. Too many because he said, you will be boastful and say, my own power has given me this victory. Perhaps they would have been doubly proud by gaining a victory outnumbered so badly. They would have tended to pat themselves on the back and see themselves as the ones who provided this victory for themselves. And so, 
God says, let the ones who are afraid go home. It must have been disconcerting for Gideon and the Israelites to find out that when they had the chance, two-thirds, more than two-thirds of the army were scared and left. You know, they melt away. We've now got 10,000 men against 135,000 Midianite soldiers. And God says it's not the right number. Still too many. (laughs) That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Still too many. And so it's a little difficult to be sure exactly the nature of this test. God gives them a test. He sends them down to to the water source and sees how they drink water. Now, some have suggested that uh, the, the 300 who lacked the water, as opposed to kneeling down to drink the water, that they were the ones who were more alert and better prepared to fight the enemy. It seems to me, however, that in this context, God is selecting the least likely way to win. And uh, I heard it suggested a while back, and I think it's worth considering, that it may be just the opposite. That the, the men who actually were sent away were the people who weren't afraid to just go out here to the stream and stick their head in it and drink. But that you had uh, 300 men who perhaps were raised in the city, I don't know, and and they they felt kind of squeamish about that, and so they just kind of got some of the water in their hand and kind of laughed at it a little bit. And uh, they were were afraid to to really, you know, just stick their head up down in there and drink. And that perhaps God used the 300 men who were kind uh, kind of squeamish. 300 men who were, who were kind of, uh, you know, not very courageous, sort of timid guys. And that those were the ones he selected. It seems to me that that fits with the purpose of the story, at least. There's some other suggestions as well. But, but at any rate, the army gets down to 300 men. That's outnumbered more than 300 to 1. More than 400 to 1, I think. And, uh, well, that, that's the right size now for the Lord to use. Look at verse 9. Now the uh, same night it came about that the Lord said to him, this is Judges 7, 9, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hands. But if you're afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterwards your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his friend answered and said, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. And it came about when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation that he bowed in worship, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. God understands Gideon very well. And God was willing to be compassionate with Gideon's needs. Even back in chapter 6, we found over and over again that Gideon needed reassurance. And now he's got 300 men in his whole army And he looks down at the camp of the Midianites, and they are scattered out everywhere. They have more camels than there are sand on the seashore. I mean, this is an enormous, well-equipped army. 
And Gideon's scared, and so God sends him down to listen in on one of the Midianites telling a dream he had to the other one that is interpreted by them to mean that Gideon's going to win the victory. And that was just another way of God using now the Midianites to comfort Gideon and to kind of bolster his courage, to kind of uh, help him along, give him a hand so that he'll have the courage to go and fight in the battle. God is so patient with his servants. Verse 16, And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpet then uh, all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon um, uses some kind of unusual weapons. He uh, gives each of his 300 men a trumpet, a pitcher, and some sort of a, a lantern inside the pitcher. And he requires some odd military skills from these men. They're going to have to be able to uh, blow a trumpet and break a jar and shout. You know, no one would ever think of fighting a battle quite this way. You know, they don't usually, if, if, if they send you to Iraq, they're probably not going to send you trained only for blowing trumpets and breaking jars. You know, they're probably going to give you certain other kind of training. You know, when you go through your, your basic training and your specialized uh, skills that you learn and so forth, uh, I've not heard too much about jar breaking and shouting as being in the curriculum. This is what God's having Gideon have his men do. Things that seem just totally ludicrous. They're already outnumbered 400 to 1. The, the Midianites have the camels, have the latest technology, whatever. And Gideon says, listen, I want you to take these jars and these torches and these trumpets and go out there and we're going to fight them. Well, in verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they just posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran, crying as they fled. And when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Bethshitta, towards Zerah, as far as the edge of Abel-Mahola, by Tabith. And the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Bethbara and the Jordan, and they captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. <laughs> it's kind of amazing what the Lord causes to happen. 
Gideon divided his army into three camps, three groups of a hundred. They approached the Midianite encampment at night from three sides. And at the predetermined signal, they all blow their trumpets and they break the jars revealing these torches and they shout. Well, the Midianites do not lack for aggression. They come out fighting. They've got their swords. Only in their confusion and perhaps imagining that a great army was against them, they start killing off each other. As far as I can see, the Israelites don't have much to do in the battle. They kill off each other and they start running and uh, the Israelites chase them. And uh, Gideon tells the Ephraimites to go down to the fords of the river and head the Midianites off at the pass. And the Ephraimites capture the two great leaders, Oreb and Zeb, kill them and uh, take off their heads. And that's how the Lord gave the victory to Gideon and his huge army of 300. Chapter 8 and verse 1, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you've done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? And they contended with him vigorously. But he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. The Ephraimites are upset. They weren't called to the battle. They were just called at the end to cut the leaders off of the pass. And it's like, well, how come you didn't call us? They're angry because they feel like they've sort of been ignored. Maybe sort of, uh, you know, not properly appreciated. They should have been the first ones to have been called, perhaps. We'll see later in the book of Judges. They seem to always have their feelings on their shoulder. And uh, Gideon repels them with very mild, gentle words. He said, well, now, now think about it, guys. You know, the leftovers from your grape harvest is better than the whole, whole harvest from where I come from. Why, what you guys did killing those two leaders, well, what I did was nothing in comparison with what you did. That's a pretty wise answer. He's able to calm them by praising what they've done and sort of uh, looking down on what he himself had done. He kept his emotions under control. It would have been easy for him to have lashed out and said, well, you know, here I did all this. What are you guys complaining about? But no, Gideon, with respect and kindness and humility, praises what their accomplishment had been, and he calms their anger. It's very important in times like this for Gideon to not uh, give vent to his own feelings, but to, to do what's really best in order to try to keep the unity of the 12 tribes. So God gives a great victory to Gideon and his army over the Midianites. I'd like to draw four lessons from this story as we conclude this morning. First of all, that man tends to take credit for God's blessings. When God told them to reduce the size of the army, the reason was, lest Israel become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. Now, you wouldn't think, outnumbered four to one, 
that the Israelites would ever think that they'd done it under their own power. But God knew they would. You especially wouldn't think, outnumbered 13 to 1, that they would think that they had gained the victory by their own power. But God knew they would. God knew he had to reduce the size of the army to being outnumbered 400 to 1 to have some hope that they'll see the hand of God in it and not give themselves the credit. And we're going to see tonight that not even that kept them. Really seeing that the Lord was the one who given them the victory. We have such a tendency to accept the praise and credit and glory for ourselves. It doesn't make any difference how bad the odds are or how unlikely the situation. Our first thought is to give the credit to ourselves. That is such a serious problem. For us. I'm, I, I think about a story I've been studying. I'm studying Genesis with like four different groups right now. And uh, have been reading where Jacob and Laban made the agreement over which animals Jacob would get. And Jacob offered to take the striped and spotted and speckled and off-color animals. And then Jacob came up with this scheme. You know, he, he took some tree branches and he, he made cuts in them to where they stripped the bark in stripes. So the, the branches were actually striped, a dark stripe and a light stripe, a dark stripe and a light stripe. And, and when the animals were mating, he set those, those branches right in front of them to where well, as the animals were mating, they'd look at those branches. And that way the offspring would come out striped. Now, uh, you know, <laughs> we know a little bit about genetics. And we have an idea that it doesn't make a whole lot of difference what you're looking at when you mate, as far as what the offspring looks like. But you see, Jacob thought that that's what was going on. <laughs> he thought that he was producing striped animals by setting these branches up in front of the animals when they were mating. Isn't that the way we do it? We come up with some pathetic, piddly scheme of our own, and, and, and we do that. The Lord's giving us the blessing, but we give the credit to whatever it is that we've concocted that we think is going to work. Man is so apt to accept the glory and credit for himself. In contrast, think about how Paul did it in Acts 14, 27, Acts 15, Acts 21. How after Paul had gone through great missionary journeys, establishing churches, converting many people, appointing elders in the churches and so forth, he reported back the things that God had done. He did not report back the things he did. He knew God was the source of his strength. God was the one who was winning the spiritual victory. The first lesson is man has a terrible tendency to take the credit for God's, God's blessings. The second lesson is God loves bad odds. You know, God seems to have a special desire to win when the deck is totally stacked against him. I'm reminded of, of Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14 when the Philistines have oppressed the Israelites and you've only got two men willing to fight them. Jonathan is an armor bearer. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer in 1 Samuel 14, 6, come let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few makes no difference to God whether he's got two men in his army or whether he's got two million. The Lord has such strength and power that the, the size of the army is totally insignificant. 
If he's got two men in his army, that's fine. If he's got one man in his army, David versus Goliath, that's fine. If he doesn't have anybody in his army, like is in 2 Chronicles 20, and God just told the, the army of Jehoshaphat, just go on out with your musical instruments to celebrate the victory that I've already won against your enemies. And God defeated him single-handedly. That's fine with God, too. God, God likes bad odds because it tends to help us see more that it is his hand and his strength that's giving the victory. We think, well, well, we're not good enough. We're not strong enough. We're not talented enough. We're not capable enough. We don't have enough resources. And God's saying all along, it doesn't make any difference. That's not the point. You're not going to win the victory anyway. It's going to be me. The size, the resources, the talents, the abilities, those are irrelevant when the Lord is the one in the battle. The third lesson is sin self-destructive. I'm not going to belabor that point. We see it over and over again, but here it's really obvious the Midianites kill each other off. There are so many time, times where God uses sin as its own punishment, where when we do wrong, it's that very wrong that comes to defeat us. And the final lesson is that a soft answer turns away wrath. I'm really impressed with Gideon diffusing the Ephraimites' anger by saying things that were just wise and humble and gentle. Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It takes a lot of self-control. When somebody's falsely accusing us and is angry with us, to react patiently and gently, to react without retaliating, to say what... Gideon said, well, what I did was nothing compared to what you guys did. That's such a, a, a good way to handle situations of conflict. When somebody is upset with us, if we could speak kindly and courteously, if we could recognize their strengths and humble ourselves, we might do the same thing Gideon did here. He had an Ephraimite mutiny on his hands. And by the time he got done speaking, they were happy. Great lessons from, from Gideon. That man tends to take the credit for the blessings God gives. God loves bad odds. Sin is self-destructive. And a soft answer turns away wrath. Tonight we're going to look at the rest of Judges 8. And we're going to see that uh, this was not, unfortunately, the end of the story. If you have a chance this afternoon, read through the rest of that and see what you think. This morning, you've got an opportunity to obey the gospel. If you'd like to do that, if you'll come while we stand and sing. Love for all.